So we're starting a new series today. And before we get going, I want to start with an observation that I, I hear many people saying this, and I say it myself sometimes. I struggle with the Bible. I don't know if any of you out there found yourself in that situation, but perhaps you're looking at the Scriptures for inspiration or help, or you're faithfully reading through a book. Many people start at the beginning, perhaps in Genesis, and they get maybe to Leviticus, and it all starts to get a bit strange, and they struggle to read the Bible. If that's you, then hopefully this morning will be a little bit help for you. But just, just a reminder of something that I said last year, which I think is so true, is that the Bible is written to us, but it's not written for us. It was written in circumstances that are remote from us, that are distant in time and culturally as well. So while there are all sorts of gems for us in there, as we look at the Bible, as we read it, sometimes we just need help to figure out what it is it's trying to say. So Genesis obviously is the account, well, we think of Genesis as the account of the creation. And there's the creation there, and the world falling away, and, uh, and there's Noah and Abraham and stuff. But it's really about the establishing of that covenant with Noah, and then the exile to Egypt. Exodus, of course, deals with getting the Israelites out of Egypt. Leviticus, about the setting up of the worship of God in the right way. Numbers, the story of the children of Israel in the desert. Deuteronomy, Moses' great oration at the end of his life to the people of Israel, literally the second law. It's the, uh, um, it's the other book that says what Moses said. Then, of course, Moses hands on to Joshua, who takes him into the promised land. Judges, how those tribes then start to live in the land and fall away, and it takes judges to bring them back and to rescue them. Ruth, the extraordinary story of someone being taken, this Moabite lady being taken into the family of Israel because of her faithfulness to her mother-in-law. Then we get into the real meaty historical books, First and Second Samuel, where the prophet Samuel is at work, and you have the uh, anointing of King David, the David and Goliath, all that start, the start of the kings, we've got first and second kings, and the second lot of chronicles of the kings of Judah and Israel in the books of chronicles. And that gets us to where our next series is. So, that understanding of how the Bible starts is a very, very specific story. It's being told for a reason. It's not just the news in a newspaper. It's a story being told for a reason to engage us with the, um, the narrative of God's interaction with His people, with the Hebrew people. So, that last, um, that last week that we had in um, the Advent series, we made the statement that we're pilgrims, not tourists. We lifted it, uh, uh, it was something that Jonathan Sachs had quoted in his book. We are pilgrims, not tourists. And this year, I believe for us, is going to be a year of pilgrimage. And we're going to be saying a lot more about that. So that's in the back of my mind as we're thinking about what we do in terms of digging into the Scriptures between Advent and through Lent and to Easter. So the other thing is, is that um, last year we were talking about the fact that the church is in exile. 
that because of the lockdown restrictions and because we can't meet, and once again, here we are, it's just me and a tech or two, and that's all that's allowed in here. And we can't meet together to worship like we should. And so we're in exile, exiled from the way of life that we'd taken for granted, exiled from the church life that we had, but also in the bigger picture, we're exiled from that flow of God's Spirit where many come to know Him through the ministry of His church, which is a, which is a bigger, more profound, and longer-lasting exile that we've been in. The other things that have been… I've been talking with people at the start of this year, the theme of rebuilding has come up, the idea that we need to rebuild, there's things to rebuild, and not just because of the past year, but there's always that impetus to need to be rebuilding the church, that we are rebuilding in terms of how God wants us to be so that we might be more closely configured to what God has for us, and that in that there will be renewal. So how do we tie all that together? Well, those of you who've been looking carefully might have a clue. We're going to look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, as I said in the second week of Advent, um, Ezra and Nehemiah is one scroll for the Hebrews, one single scroll. It's written by a chronicler. It's get their sources gathered together. Um, there's every evidence it's by the same chronicler, and it's been gathered together for a purpose. I hope some of you, after the email I sent out earlier this week, had took the opportunity to have a look at the Bible Project's introductory um, video to Ezra and Nehemiah. This is a still from the very end of that wonderful eight and a half minutes. Some of you say it goes a bit fast. You can always listen to it through a few times, but this will give you as clear an idea of what Ezra and Nehemiah is about, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in a moment. The other thing that you might want to do is to go to Bible Gateway and listen, um, listen to uh, the audio Bible, read the Bible. If you listen to the audio Bible, you can get David Suchet. He reads the New International UK version. And just let the words of this book soak in. There's stuff in there that will be strange. There's things that are culturally difficult for us. And there are long lists of names. But we'll, again, we're going to get to that. But let's start today by reading in Ezra chapter 1. Shall we do that? If you have your Bible with you, you might want to open up there. This is Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and He has appointed me to build a temple for Him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of His people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. 
then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God has moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Sheshbazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. And that is Ezra chapter 1. A little bit of historical context to help. In 587 BC, as we have, um, as we've noted previously, that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor, had sent his forces through and had taken the last of the tribes of Israel. Remember, the northern tribes had been carried off in stages over the previous century or so. But now in 587 BC, Judah and Benjamin are carried off in exile. The priests and the Levites, the temple is destroyed. All of the um, civil service and those who had learning things of that, they were taken from Jerusalem. Some Jews were left, but many of them were taken. And this is a source of enormous grief. This is the destruction of the the temple that had replaced the tabernacle that David had wanted to build, but Solomon finally built. This was the temple into which the presence of God had poured, that the cloud of the presence had shown itself, where the Ark of the Covenant sat. One of the things that in in Ezra chapter 1 we don't see is the return of the Ark of the Covenant to the second temple. It doesn't make it. And so there's that sense that um, there's work to be done, but there's a theme that runs right the way through Ezra and Nehemiah that God is restoring the fortunes of Israel, but there's still something more to come. So in 587 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor, um, has all these things carried out. Now, Nebuchadnezzar fell to Cyrus, who became the first emperor of the Persians, and it's Cyrus who issues this edict, this edict that the temple in Jerusalem is to be restored. Fascinatingly, we know from archaeological um, items, documents, that this is something that Cyrus did all over. The Babylonians tended to gather all the officials to Babylon and then put them in different places. You see this in the book of Daniel. But Cyrus actually took local um, people and sent them out to lead where they were. He was careful that there weren't any um, opposing rulers set up, and we'll see as we move through Ezra and Nehemiah 
that he's not sent, the, 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 the rightful king, the prince of Judah, is this guy Sheshbazar, who we, we don't hear too much about. He's descended from David. He is not set up as king. Um, Cyrus remains king in this situation, but he does see the restoration of Jerusalem and suggests that this should be supported. And in this wonderful parallel with the, the, um, the Egyptians giving wealth to the children of Israel as they leave after the plagues and the Passover into the desert. So, the Persian Empire gives resources to the Jewish people for the rebuilding of their temple. And this book, Ezra and Nehemiah, ties together these, these themes of being exiled but being pilgrims, of rebuilding and renewal. It ties it all together. The promise of the restoration of Jerusalem had come from the prophet Jeremiah, who was prophesying at the time when the temple was destroyed. This is from um, Jeremiah 29. And of course, this is before Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Says the Lord's plans not to harm you, but to give you hope in a future. This is the verse before it. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll come back to you and fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place. So God has promised to restore the Israelites to Jerusalem through the prophet Jeremiah. And this promise is made good in this edict from King Cyrus. Now, I want us to focus on this verse here, right at the start. This is a... Um, we need to read this verse carefully. Maybe, maybe you could read it with me. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put, to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Okay. Now, as we read this verse, it, it, because it sounds like a historical thing, it sounds a lot like the start of Luke, doesn't it? When Quirinius was governor of Syria and so on and so forth. We're being given historical details to help us locate this story historically because it, the tendency in the ancient world is you're better saying, well, when so-and-so was in charge of here and so-and-so in charge was there, instead of using a date. Now, this verse is a really important verse, along with other verses like this in the Scriptures. Let me ask you a question. Who was behind Nebuchadnezzar carrying off the children of Israel into exile? Who's behind that? Was it just Nebuchadnezzar's um, initiative, or is there something else behind it? And if you read through the prophets, if you read through Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, you find again and again the indication that Israel had strayed from its faith. It had taken itself out of the covenant blessings that are spoken of in Deuteronomy and had put itself under the covenant curses. If you do this, you will be blessed. If you don't do this and do that, then be, you'll be cursed. 
And so God is the one, in terms of the biblical narrative, who's behind the, the bad things that have happened through Nebuchadnezzar. Does that mean that God makes all bad things happen? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But what we do understand from the biblical narrative is that God's agency is there behind what's happening, even the most powerful imperial people of their day. And that was true of Nebuchadnezzar, and now it's also true for Cyrus, king of Persia. According to the biblical chronicler who put together Ezra and Nehemiah, it was in order to fulfill what the Lord said through Jeremiah. Think about that for a while. In God's economy, the prophet Jeremiah speaking His Word is more certain, more sure, more established a future truth than all of the actions of all the despots and kings and emperors and whatever may be. That's an extraordinary thought. And here, the chronicler is making sure that we understand that from the perspective of this book, from the perspective of the God of this book, these events were initiated by God Himself. And that Cyrus was led to do this in order that there would be restoration for the temple. Now, all sorts of things are going to happen. Some good, some not so good. That's a pattern in this book, as you will understand if you watch the introduction, the Bible Project introduction. And of course, in the email, if you're feeling really, really up for it, there's a four-and-a-half-hour day conference that Tim Mackey, who's, um, uh, as he describes himself, the biblical nerd behind the Bible Project, opens up Ezra and Nehemiah. Joel reckons that um, Tim Mackey did his PhD on Ezra and Nehemiah, and he certainly seems to know the books really, really well. So, even though Cyrus is the king of Persia, even though it's his words that enact the restoration of Jerusalem, behind that, God is acting. God is acting. And what Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed, in brackets, what God had permitted Nebuchadnezzar to destroy, Cyrus is seeing it's rebuilt. In brackets, God is seeing that Jeremiah's promise is fulfilled to His people, and it just happens to be through Cyrus, the emperor of the Persian Empire. To give you an even more comprehensive idea of how this narrative slots into this book, if you read the very last verse, the very last chapter, sorry, of 2 Kings, 2 Kings 25, you will read about the destruction of Jerusalem, the carrying off of the exiles, the destruction of the temple. That's there in the last chapter of 2 Kings. If you read in the last chapter of 2 Chronicles, chapter 36 and verses 22 and 23, you are given word for word the first half of Cyrus, king of Persia's edict at the start of the book of Ezra. So, just like two Lego bricks, 
wait there, you're going to need to be looking at me for thank you. Just like two Lego bricks, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah lock right into the books of Chronicles. It's intended that you see that this one finishes, this one starts. Like two sheets of wallpaper on the wall, they match up to make sure that you've got the narrative. As Tim Mackey says, I love this phrase, the people who put the Hebrew Bible together were literary ninjas. They were literary ninjas. They, they're doing things that are so complex and so intricate and so amazing that you can lose yourself for a lifetime just looking at them. And if the Bible happens to make you bored, he says, you're not paying attention. Now, that's no shame on any of us because these things have occupied some great minds. But if when you're reading the Scriptures you find yourself getting bored, it's because you're not seeing what God is doing through that text. You may need to put it down, or you maybe need to just read it again. You maybe need to ask the Holy Spirit to start to speak to you through it. You may need to go and have a read of something else that will help you understand how this book works that was written to you, but not necessarily for you. There's some hurdles to cross. To give you an idea, I, I thought it might be fun to have a look at the second chapter of Ezra as well. Because if you look at chapter 2 of Ezra, now these are the people of the province who came up from captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to their own town, in company with Zerubbabel. He's going to become a very important priestly person. Joshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, and so the list goes on. And this list then grows into the list of the men and people of Israel, the descendants of Parash, of Shephatiah, of Ara, of Pahath Moab. And by the time you get halfway down this, your eyes are drooping, okay? Your eyes are drooping, right? Am I right? Am I right? Am I right? Or am I wrong? Now, this list makes no sense to us because we don't know these people. But if we're talking about places and people, if we were to say the people of Pathhead, or the people of Pennycook, or the people of Newton Grange, actually, let's be more specific, the people of the Bryans. How about the people of Burnside Road? the people of Schoon, the people of Danoon, the people of Wick. As soon as I say those words, you start to conjure ideas in your head about who these people are, their history, okay? For all us bikers, I mean, Wick, we got further north than that, the people of Durness. We like Durness when we rode around the North Coast 500. These, these are places, the people of Belfast, the people of New Jersey, wherever it may be, the people of South Korea, as soon as you mention a geographical location, if you know where these places are, all sorts of stories come to mind. All sorts of stories. Here's the other thing, is that as soon as you start to mention names, as soon as you start to mention names, those names become pregnant with meaning. So if I think that, well, there's Lorna Wilkie, and she's the niece of Davy McNeil, who was married to Effie, who grew up in, you know, 
wherever it was in Newton Grange. And suddenly you've got this amazing, um, you know, and Lorna's going to be a grandmother soon. And congratulations, Lorna and Andy. Just that whole, um, as soon as we mention those words and we know the people, it starts to make sense in a wider context. If we don't know who they are, they're, they're just a list of people. Interestingly, for many traditional cultures, um, genealogies are really important. And when missionaries first started to carry um, the gospel to Polynesian people, particularly to the Maoris in New Zealand, um, there are stories of how they weren't really getting anywhere until they got to these lists. And then the Maoris really got interested. And the reason the Maoris got interested is because they said, ah, these people have ancestors, and they respect those ancestors. And any faith which regards ancestors as significant is obviously wise, and we need to pay attention to it. And as you start to open up the Scriptures, these things speak to us. Tied into these lists of names are people who figure and other places in the story. We don't have time to go into all of that. I'm just saying that if we get bored when we're reading the Scriptures, it's because we're not seeing what's going on. And perhaps our struggle with it is that we need to open it out. Um, we need to have it opened out for us. It's one of the reasons why teaching every Sunday is what Christians have done. And we took that straight from the Jews. They gather in synagogue gather around the Scriptures. They read Scriptures at certain times a year, just like we went back to the first chapters of Matthew and Luke and John, and we worked all the way through various Scriptures in Advent. We keep going back to them to remind ourselves and to learn afresh and to dig in deeper what those Scriptures are saying to us. And in that process, we all grow and learn, and uh, that is why that's why it's good to do this and to do it regularly. So, the literary ninjas. The literary ninjas of the Hebrew Bible are giving us this big picture story that God keeps His promises. He can even work through the actions of pagan kings who owe Him no allegiance. They don't keep the law. They worship other gods. And the big picture message here at the start of Ezra and Nehemiah is that God's providence is at work. Providence, that God will fulfill His promises, the good purposes of His love, at times through and at times in spite of people's actions, our own, others included. There are many ways to understand what it means for God's will to be done. For some of us, and I, I come across this a lot, is that people will say that, that I believe everything happens for a reason. I was chatting to someone going through such a tough situation this week saying, I believe everything happens for a reason. And that's almost biblical, but not quite. The biblical answer to it is that all things work together for good, and that somehow God is able to, um, is, is able to bring… Th one of the extraordinary things about God's goodness is He can bring things around to fulfill His promises. 
Again, it was Tim Mackey talking to his friend John on a podcast once, and he was talking about three different understandings of, um, of predestination. One of them is, is it's kind of like a chessboard, that, um, that all the moves are there. It's like a preordained game of chess, um, and that, that we understand that all the moves are deliberate, and, uh, and, and it's, it's very, very rigorously set out before us. The second had to do with, I can't remember what the second one is, to be honest, but it's the third one that I want to focus on. And that is saying that God is like the captain of a ship that's caught in all kinds of different weather with a sort of wayward crew, not entirely trustworthy crew. I think that will be us. But that that ship will make it to the destination that the captain has decided that we're going to be setting out on. And that is a good understanding of providence. Bad things happen in this world, bad things. That there are, creation runs, and it runs its course, but creation is fallen. It's broken. That's the message of the Scriptures. We read in here time and time again, bad things happen. But when good starts to come out of it, God's at work. And that's providence. That's the idea that behind whatever happens in history, God's hand is at work. That God will fulfill His promises to us at times through and at other times in spite of people's actions. And providence also is the, the notion that as bad things happen, as good things happen, Jesus has got us in His hands. God has Israel through all of its… Think about the history of the Jewish people, all of its ups and downs, and yet the promise of the Scriptures is that God has them. God has them. We'll come back to this in a bit, but as I was listening to Tim Mackey talking about Ezra and Nehemiah, he came to the one verse in Nehemiah that many of us have got memorized from Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10. The joy of the Lord is our strength, except in our English translations, that's the only time that Hebrew word is translated strength. I kind of could mean that, but there are better translations. The rest of the time that that word is translated in the Scriptures, it's the, it's, instead of the word strength, it's the word refuge or protection. The joy of the Lord is our refuge. God's joy is our refuge. And that's a wonderful image of this providence that God is giving here, that at one time the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel could be watching the destruction, prophesying the destruction of the temple, the carrying off of the people, the destruction of the walls, all the difficulties that would entail a second exodus, this time not in Egypt, but in Babylon. They could be prophesying all these things and all the hardship they went through. Isaiah the same in the northern kingdoms. But still, they could hold on to the notion that God is good. He will make it work for good. And indeed, some of the most extraordinary verses of Scripture and of promise are found in Isaiah. In Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. In Jeremiah 31, I will give you a new heart. In Ezekiel 33, um, I will give you a heart of flesh for your heart of stone. Sorry, Jeremiah 
31, that the law will be written on their hearts. Plans, and, and we've said, of course, in Jeremiah 29, 11, I have plans not to harm you, but to prosper you. Those prophets that spoke into the direst of times for their people, their mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, cousins, nephews, nieces, people they knew from places they knew in families they knew and loved. They could speak that with that assurance that God's goodness was at work underneath. And at the end of the ages, when their life here was far gone spent, it would happen. And we see that time and time and time again. In this, in this narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah, that God is restoring and giving hope, even though His people will once again in some ways be obedient and faithful and go on that pilgrimage, but they will also be, they'll be feckless and they will not do things entirely as intended, and there are still heart problems which will need to be sorted and indeed will only finally be sorted in Jesus, whose arrival time is prophesied by Daniel during that exile in Babylon, the 70 times 7. That's when Jesus shows up, but that's for another time. So, in these days, when we're restricted from going outside, when we're having to change our plans once again, we're facing great difficulty when we look on the news of the events in the Capitol building, as we think about the hardships that are facing people around about us just now, and we wonder if it's president this or prime minister that or first minister this who's in charge. According to this book, according to the story of this God with us, His people, who's in charge? Who really is in charge? The earliest confession of the church is three words. Three words. Words which define whether something's truly Christian or not. I remember sitting, I was in a, a, a discussion with a, with a colleague whose theological convictions are very different from mine, but he's a Christian. And he said, well, I suppose when it comes down to it, it's if we confess this, that Jesus is Lord. That's it. That's the confession of the early church. Jesus is Lord. As we said last year, Jesus is Lord, boss, king, in charge. And as we step into this, as, as, as we put another foot on this path and this pilgrimage through this year to rebuild and renew, what we need to know at the outset for ourselves, for our families, for our nation, for our world, is that Jesus is Lord, even though the reality of circumstances will sometimes be screaming out to us that that is unlikely or not the case, and that things are happening in and around about us that are just seem to be much more of hell than heaven. 
But that same Jesus who's Lord has called us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, to pray for forgiveness, to pray for daily bread, to pray. I hope some of you are picking up the Maria's. I've got another, um, the second week to send that to you as you pray through the Lord's Prayer. All of those things were necessary things to pray in the world in which, by faith, Jesus is Lord. Providence for us is trusting that we're safe in His arms through all of the hardships and the trials, and that He will carry us right through our days. And I'm going to pray now that you would know that for yourself. So as we start this pilgrimage through this year, as we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, we'll be looking at Ezra up to um, the start of Lent in February, and then we're going to be looking at Nehemiah all the way up to Easter. Ross is going to be um, joining us every five weeks or so to, to talk to us about growing young. He'll be doing more of that later. I've sent a little bit out to you about that. Anyway, that's where we're going this year. And I pray that this year is meaningful because it is always the right time to be a disciple, to allow Jesus to draw us closer to Himself, to be filled with the Spirit, to be wrapped up in the Father's love. It's always the right time for that. And if we as a church are prepared to trust Him for that this year, then whatever renewal the Lord has for us, we will be ready to contain it and sustain it and share it in Jesus' name. And if we're doing that, then we'll be living in the reality of what this book has for us, and the promise of God in Jesus Christ through His people, the Jews, that has been gifted to us in these precious pages. And if you find yourself struggling with this, you stand a long line of people, many of whom have been responsible for shaping this world and for communicating the good news of Jesus to us and ours. May we pray.